KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Three delays and 18 months, but it's finally here. Hello, Q. I've missed you. And we've missed you, Mr. Bond. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Accomando, Beth Accomando. That's right, No Time to Die, the 25th film in Eon Productions' James Bond franchise, is finally here and playing in cinemas. Originally scheduled for an April release in 2020, the pandemic forced the last film in the Daniel Craig cycle of Bond movies to be postponed repeatedly, increasing the level of anticipation to an unbearably high level. But it's totally worth the wait. As a lifelong Bond fan, I've been eagerly awaiting No Time to Die, but also feeling a tinge of sadness knowing that Craig's tenure as the famous MI6 agent is coming to an end. To discuss Bond's final mission and to explore 007's cinematic and literary dossier, I've brought in a pair of special agents. My guests for this Cinema Junkie episode of Part 1, Bond, James Bond, are a pair of espionage aficionados, both of whom are regular contributors to Shane Whaley's Spyberry podcast. I'll discuss No Time to Die with Gary Dexter, and then Jeff Quest will join the conversation to consider the Bond franchise. But first, I need to take one quick break, and then I'll be back to look at the fantasy spy world in this Cinema Junkie episode of Bond, James Bond. To take us into the break, here's Eric Leonardis with a Share Your Addiction. Hi, I'm Eric Leonardis. Um, I am a neuroscientist, and I'm here to share my addiction. Um, so one quick point is everyone thinks that scientists are like those people in the Big Bang Theory. No, no, this is nonsense. Actually, we are much more like the chaos mathematician Dr. Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park. And I'll explain to you why. Um, Ian Malcolm is not only a thoughtful scientist and mathematician, um, but he has something to say about the unintended effects in the world. He has taught us that just because you could do something doesn't mean you should. This is something that my students bring up all the time in class. I've found that Ian Malcolm has influenced my students ethically more so than most people have. Um, and when it comes down to it, he is also extremely sexy. And that's what scientists really are. When we are doing and engaging in chaos mathematics, that's what it looks like. Thanks, Eric. I'm going to check in with Q Branch right now, and then I'll be back with my double O colleagues to discuss Bond, James Bond. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Welcome back. Q assures me there's no need to worry about any ejector seat if you're listening in your car. So we're safe to proceed with a review of Bond 25, No Time to Die. You ever flown like this? No. Gary Dexter flew to London to see No Time to Die at its earliest release date. That's fandom for you. (laughs) 
and Jeff Quest describes himself as a huge fan of spy novels and runs SpyWrite.com, a website dedicated to spy fiction and nonfiction in all forms, movies, TV, and books. To start the podcast, I spoke with Gary shortly after he'd seen No Time to Die for the second time in London. Here's our spoiler-free review of the film. And before we talk about the film, I wanted him to describe the atmosphere in England surrounding the release of the movie. It's crazy the way the nation has embraced Bond this time is uh, very similar to Bond mania in the, the height of the Connery era. You can throw a stone essentially and hit some sort of Bond tie-in or promotion. Your watch. How strong is it? Fairly strong. We haven't had the time to test it properly, just be careful. This is going to go brilliantly. Omega shops have got the gun barrel motif on there. They've got prop displays inside. In fact, some of the props that are seen in the film and the portraits of the different M's. London had a gigantic 007 sculpture in Leicester Square ahead of the movie's debut. And then I guess they moved that over to the Albert Hall for the actual premiere. It's really exciting. It it, it definitely has a a vibe unlike any Bond that I've um, experienced here in the past. So you're seeing Bond in what's probably the best conditions with all that excitement and mania going on. And you've already seen it twice. So what's your gut reaction to it? It's unique. I've never seen a Bond like it. It's its own beast. Tonally, it seems very different. That being said, uh, it has callbacks to so many aspects of Bond in the past, both uh, cinematic and literary. And of course, if you're off on some tremendous plot with heaven knows what, James Bond in a hat or with some terrible villain, if he can use a Bronson lighter, let's say, or drive a Bentley motor car or uh, stay in the Ritz Hotel, this all brings the reader back to Earth. There's a lot of Fleming that's been left behind over the years, but this one, I think, more than any other, certainly at a time when they ran out of original titles to use for for the movies anyway really pays homage and draws directly from a lot of literary bond it was it's very exciting well i have to say that when i came out of it i know that a lot of people are talking about the fact that it's almost three hours long two hours and 45 minutes but i have to say my first reaction to it was it moved fast and it felt like it had all the classic bond action and yet it had this emotional weight to it as well which was both surprising and a great way to wrap up the series. I, I agree, I agree. It was it was very much um, Daniel's interpretation of Bond um, in keeping really with things that we'd seen from the get-go in Casino Royale. It carried emotional heft unlike we've ever seen before in a Bond and it was all the better for it. I felt it was very much Craig saying goodbye to his tenure in the character. It reminded me a little bit of Harrison Ford and Han Solo. Craig's approach to this movie was kind of similar. He wanted a, a sort of finality to his, his arc, and I think he achieved that too. Well, you mentioned these callbacks, and one thing I felt when I was watching it is there were these nice touches. Some of them were very overt, and some of them were more subtle, but you get like the very clear reference to Honor Majesty Secret Service. We have on the time in the world 
And then you get other things that are a little more subtle where he's in Jamaica, which can reference both the location of a couple of bonds and also the fact that Ian Fleming himself was in Jamaica. So it was like these Easter egg kind of things going on. It, it certainly was. And it, it began from the moment the credits dropped with the Doctor No style dots appearing on the screen. As soon as I saw that, I thought, oh, I think I know where we're going here. And it, as you say, it ran throughout, yes, very much the the line from Majesty's, but also a lot of um, reorchestrations of Majesty's soundtrack in there as well for, from that point and elsewhere in the movie. And it, it was absolutely littered with callbacks. We had a, a copious amount of Aston Martins, including the DB5, has almost become traditional in, in this era. But of course, we had the, the Living Daylights era, Aston appearing as well. What I thought was really surprising was it, the Cuba setting was almost a callback to Die Another Day. And I would have thought if you're avoiding callbacks, that would be the one to avoid, but I guess not. So it was <laughs> embraced everything. Cuba. It seems Mr. Sal has lost himself in Havana. If you find him, say goodbye from us. With pleasure. And I absolutely loved the production design of uh, Safin's lair because it was pure Ken Adam. I mean, it was just straight out of the Ken Adam School of Design, and it was just absolutely fantastic. It looked beautiful on screen. Yeah, it did remind me when they have this section, I won't give anything away, but there's a point at which something opens up and it looks very much like the volcano lair in You Only Live Twice. And I was going like, oh, that kind of calls back to that. It, it really does. It really does. And it, it follows the revelation of who the bad guy is and where the bad guy is located. And then the, the kind of going to the bad guy's location and, and taking him out. And it was that was a series of beats that kind of followed classic Bond as well. So I think there was even a call back to that. But one of the things that I enjoyed about this is I felt it moved Bond into a more contemporary era in terms of how the female characters were, but without that kind of in-your-face way that they did it in some of the Pierce Brosnan ones where, you know, I think M calls him out for being a dinosaur. Because I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, a relic of the Cold War whose boyish charms they wasted on me obviously appeal to that young woman I sent out to evaluate you. Point taken. Not quite, W7. Bunny Penny yells at him for being a chauvinist pig. You know, this sort of behavior could qualify as sexual harassment. Really? What's the penalty for that? Someday you have to make good on your innuendos. After you, Bunny Penny. No, I insist. You first. This was much more kind of organic. You just have female characters who seem to be about to behave in the way we typically expect in a Bond film, but then they don't. But they don't do it in this way of this kind of very strident, oh, we're going to make a feminist statement. It's just like, hey, you expected me to be one thing, and I'm another. The world's moved on, Commander Bond. You a double O. Two years. Nomi is highly skilled. She's slightly cocky. You get in my way. I will put a bullet in your knee. Santiago, I want you to meet. Paloma? You're late. 
Very much so. I think none more so than uh, Anna Darmus's role. Her character is set up to be extremely ditzy, just the way she communicates and what she tells Bond and her style. And um, we find out that, yes, that might genuinely be the, the character's nature, but it's no reflection on her competency. Yeah, I agree. It was very much defying expectation, leading you one way and then taking you somewhere else. It was, it was, it was very, very good. And I, I really enjoyed Nomi as well and, uh, and the, the way she interacted with Bond and the evolution of the relationship on screen. It was much more credible for a male-female character interaction. She was forthright and a confident character in her own right without being sort of obnoxious or, or undermining Bond's fundamental nature, which really can't be too modern era, I think. It's got to be, Bond has to be true to his nature and then confronting and interacting with 21st century women characters um, and, and that reality defining the direction that the plot goes in. And I think they did a fantastic job with that. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, because a couple of times we have instances where he thinks women are coming on to him or he thinks that he's going to be in some sort of sexual situation and it's completely diffused with a bit of humor and kind of this sense of like, yeah, you're getting a little old and, and this whole kind of trope is going away, but we'll play with it still. Definitely, yeah. And, and in fact, I thought that might be one of the literary callbacks because, of course, in the literary Moonraker, Bond doesn't get the girl, and you know, and Gala Brand doesn't sort of fall into his arms as so many had at that time, and um, that the the way these characters were interacting with him and the outcome kind of put me in mind of that as well. You know, I feel on a certain level, Barbara Broccoli has done what Kevin Feige did with Marvel is she's brought this sense of this overarching storyline across multiple films, creating this kind of Bond universe where a character may come in, exit, come back. But we feel there's this kind of sense of these films all go together in a very complex and clever way. Yeah, definitely. I had the same reaction because we've always sort of accepted Bond in the back of our mind. We kind of ignore the fact that he looks different every few years. And there's always some very, very loose, I admit, but some sort of continuity through it and a game that we could always play, which was to say, well, if I look at the way everything's changed as a reaction to the modern world, the reality, how do these movies all fit together into some sort of continuous timeline for a single character and they haven't often mentioned the past I mean there was in uh, For Your Eyes Only if I'm remembering correctly um, Bond visits Tracy's grave but there's not a lot of reference overt reference to continuity in it and um, again in Daniel's era we we have mention of, of Vespa but even so when you think well Casino Royale is is at least a semi-reboot so does that mean if we look at the arc of all the other movies and ignoring the fact of their sort of contemporaneous setting that we can plug these all together into one timeline that sort of begins with Casino Royale and, and, and moves forward? This kind of five film arc changes that you know, completely. And, you know, for a long time, many people have said, wouldn't it be fun to go back in time and do a pure Cold War era bond? And then everyone has said, well, that's never going to work. You know, he has to evolve and stay with the modern era. But now, really, in a post-annual world, we could do that. And that, that actually could be 
an awful lot of fun. I mean, again, looking at Marvel with Captain America, we visited his life at lots of different times. You could do this with Bond as well. I think really anything's possible after this. Hope that whets your appetite to see the film. I have to confess, at the press screening, I got goosebumps. There was a taped message from Daniel Craig thanking the audience for their patience because Bond deserved the big screen. And then the music started over black. And yeah, goosebumps. need to take one last break and then I'll be back to look at the fantasy spy world of James Bond on screen and in the books with Gary Dexter and Jeff Quest. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Welcome back. When I spoke with Gary Dexter and Jeff Quest last month, none of us had yet seen No Time to Die. So for this part of the discussion, remember, we were only speaking in eager anticipation of the film's release. I began by asking each of them how they got introduced to Bond. Goldfinger He's the man The man with a well, my earliest memory is Goldfinger, and I was—I saw that on television. That may be a large part in uh, the high esteem that I hold it in. As far as what got me hooked on spy films, I'm not sure, to be honest. It was uh, a simultaneous experience between films and, and books, and I tend to have, for as long as I remember, a relatively cynical outlook in life, and I enjoy the, the moral ambiguity that's... Um, so prevalent in, uh, in spy fiction, um, and particularly actually the literary Bond. And I thought, well, now, James Bond, now that's a pretty quiet name, and so I simply stole it and used it. It's the kiss of death from Mr. Goldfinger. And Jeff? You know, I can trace it back probably to reading Hardy Boys books and they, you know, kind of transitioned into some spy activities. And I think that really sparked my spy fandom even more so than it had been. And then, you know, switching to movies, when I was growing up, you couldn't turn on the TV on the weekend, you know, the three channels that we had back then without seeing a Bond film popping up. And so I think that definitely lit the lit the fire, lit the fuse for spy fandom. One week from tonight. Hello. At 8.30, 7.30 Central and Mountain. What kind of work do you do anyway? The original James Bond dives into action. You would like Bond there. And surrounds the most beautiful women. Thunderball. Friendless discretion buzz. What do you think it might have been about Bond in particular that kind of hooked your interest and really captured your imagination? When it comes to Bond, he's the big dog on the block, right? I mean, everybody else is playing catch-up when it comes to Bond. Mr. Bond. James Bond. 
He's the one that everybody has been orbiting around. All the other spy films really took their cues from Bond, either as blatant imitators or as something to fight against and go completely opposite, right, with a more gritty look at Spidem. And so I think it's hard not to look at Bond and have him be the one that you put everything else up against. I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but Bond is as close as you can get to uh, a superhero without sort of super soldier serums and, and actual superpowers. I mean, his capabilities are far beyond mortal human beings, and yet still more grounded than the Marvel Universe, which uh, I love um, as a close second to Bond. Of course, one of the things that, that made him very successful in, the, in both literary forms and cinematic is that he came into everybody's uh, pop culture consciousness at a time when uh, the world was still reeling from World War II and rationing was, was rife, especially uh, in the UK and what was left of, of Europe. Of course, people were still coming to terms with the, the fall of the Iron Curtain. And so you had a fairly sort of drab grey time, particularly when Casino Royale hit um, and was published there. And so it was showing people a world far beyond mortal ken, as it were, because Fleming came from a very privileged existence himself and was able to experience these things and share his impressions with other people. Um, I think this is perhaps slightly less true when Dr. No appeared in the 60s, but it was still showing people wonderful foreign locales, you know, the beautiful Jamaican scenery in particular at a time when the average man and woman was incapable of, of air travel and, and traveling to these locations. I can't really write about anywhere that I haven't seen myself. Um, being basically a reporter by trade, I have got a, a good, strong visual sense for background and, and interesting detail and so on, which I try to bring into my books just in order to um, uh, make them seem more valid and truthful. So I feel like I was born with Bond in the cinematic version. So I was born in 1960 and I remember seeing Goldfinger and getting the album and playing it so often that my parents had to hide it because they were so tired of it. I'm just curious, what do you think kind of led to it being this? Because it was kind of an instant success. When Dr. No comes out, it was a big hit. And it feels like there was something going on that just, I know that also, you know, John F. Kennedy reading the books kind of gave it an extra buzz because, you know, that kind of legitimized this kind of pop entertainment. And uh, what do you feel kind of led to Bond being this instant pop culture success once the films came out. The films especially hit a moment in time, right? I mean, the Cold War was starting to heat up. I think tensions are rising in the world and people are looking for somebody who can fix it all, right? And, and take care of this and take out the bad guy, the world ending bad guy. You've got that n nuclear fear hanging over everybody, right? And so this is somebody who can stop that. 
And I think that is a very powerful thought. And then you add that to just like the amazing locations, the sets, the the gadgets, all of that stuff. I mean, it just it's like, how do you not want to watch more of that? I think is, is the, the, the question. They couldn't put them out fast enough. That's why people had to start imitating them. Yeah, I think Jeff makes an interesting point there. I think the frequency of production built a certain momentum which drove the success. But but certainly, again, as far as the Cold War is concerned, you know, we were looking down the barrel of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I think people were were very hungry for um, some escapist righteousness, if you like. You are a clever, resourceful man, Mr. Bond. Well, thank you. Perhaps too clever. Twice our paths have crossed. Let's leave it at that. I should think our first meeting would have convinced you. Oh, I see. You're worried about me not giving you a return game. Bond had that, and in particular with Goldfinger, of course, that was the point at which they hit a formula which lasted for a, a very long time and became, you know, an absolute linchpin of Roger's era where the whole plot would be a very sort of strong three-act structure and, it, and the third act, of course, would be the assault on the bad guy's gigantic base <clears throat> and you'd end in this sort of big crescendo and of course that became as I say a formula that lasted for, for years and years and, and Goldfinger really um, struck the die on that formula. The purpose of our two previous encounters is now very clear to me. I do not intend to be distracted by another. Good night Mr Bond. Do you expect me to talk? No Mr Bond, I expect you to die. There is nothing you can talk to me about that I don't already know. And do you think it's that sense of formula that led to its incredibly lengthy success? I mean, we are now 25 films in, decades later, and people are still excited about a new Bond film coming out. Um, I I doubt it, because as we've seen in recent years, particularly with Daniel's um, tenure, the actual structure has definitely changed. I mean, even when... Uh, Eon finally had the opportunity to go back and do Casino. Um, it doesn't really follow that that structure. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side, Dryden. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. And the theatrics are supposed to scare me. You have the wrong man, Bond. If Em was so sure I was bent, she'd have sent a double O. Benefits of being section chief. I'd know if anyone had been promoted to double O status. No. Your file shows no kills. And it takes two. But I think what's essential is almost an accidental benefit, which is the necessity of continually recasting Bond. Mr. Bond. Oh, yes. Mr. Bond. My name's Bond. James Bond. My name is Bond. James Bond. The name's Bond. James Bond. And everybody that uh, comes to the role brings their own uh, interpretation to it. And, of course, the world has moved on a great deal since the Cold War. We don't have a Cold War as we know it um, back then anymore. Um, So there's a necessity for for the E.ON team to continually reinvent and try to bring us a story that is escapist um, and yet is um, of its time, is contextually relevant. And I think that 
that sort of recasting of of Bond, bringing these new interpretations and the drive to kind of make the plots um, to a point con- contextually relevant is a key factor in its ongoing success. You made such a bold entrance into a little drama. Did I overcomplicate the plot? Who doesn't appreciate the occasional twist, Mr. Bond? James Bond. I'd agree with Gary, but I'd push back a little bit in that I think that there are certain formula elements that are essential to Bond, that make Bond Bond, and are part of what is the soothing element that make me want to come back to there, right? I mean, there's going to be these, you know, the gadgets that he gets in each movie. Now, here's something I want you to use with special care. With special care. Everything you give me. treated with equal contempt. Yes, I know, but that's an underwater camera. It takes eight pictures in rapid succession by pressing that button there. Is that clever? But if you can take pictures in the dark with an infrared film, yes. There's the romantic interests, typically a good girl and a bad girl, if you want to put it that way, right? So that's another essential part of that. You're quite a girl, pussy. I'm strictly the outdoor type. I'd like to think you're uh, not in all of this, uh, caper. Skip it. I'm not interested. Let's go. What would it take for you to see things my way? A lot more than you've got. How do you know? I don't want to know. Isn't it customary to grant the condemned man his last request? You've asked for this. And you have the set pieces. You know there's going to be crazy stunts in each movie and I think those are all essential elements that if you didn't do some of those things and there's more of them but you got to see them in a in a tuxedo you know you've got to get that moment of some sort of game back and forth with the villain I think those are things that yeah you can maybe goes light on one of those elements in each movie but you got to have some sort of core of that otherwise uh, the audience is going to feel a little bit cheated don't judge him too harshly my dear Field operatives must often use every means at their disposal to achieve their objectives. Well, that wraps up another edition of KPBS Listener Supported Cinema Junkie. We just had too much to discuss to fit into one episode. But, like Bond, Gary, Jeff, and I will return. 007 always comes back. To finish this discussion of 007 and fantasy spies in part two of Bond, James Bond. Remember to check out Cinema Junkie Presents Geeky Gourmet, where I show you how to make food themed to each podcast. The videos are available on the KPBS YouTube channel, and the latest one will show you how to make food themed to three of the locations featured in No Time to Die, Jamaica, Norway, and Matera, Italy. Not only that, but I'll show you how to make a cake with the famous gun barrel design of the 007 Open. I'd like to acknowledge the talented team that makes Cinema Junkie happen. Podcast coordinator, Kinsey Moreland. Technical director, Rebecca Chacon. And director of sound design, Emily Jankowski. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident Cinema Junkie.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.